So we're at Romans 11 this morning. We've been going through the book of Romans for a while. Uh, we stopped for Christmas uh, for two weeks, and then we stopped for two weeks for New Year's, you know, church vision stuff. Then um, last week was its own standalone topic, so now we're back in Romans. So if you've joined, just come in the door this morning, you're like, Romans 11, like, you know, what about the first 10? I missed all those. It's fine. You can go back and check them out. I'm going to do a bit of review because you're kind of in the same spot as everyone else because I know you all have incredibly short-term memories. (laughs) You don't remember the last thing I said at all, all right? So I'm going to give you a quick review because it connects to where we're going this morning. Um, But I also want to say this before we get into it. Chapter 11 is uh, almost every point in this chapter is passionately argued about, just like chapter 9 and chapter 10, all right? But for different reasons. Um, And so I'm going to put that out there ahead of time. I'm going to do my best to dip into the weeds just for a second and then get out of the weeds and give you what's the big idea, okay? Um, because it discusses Israel, God's plan for Israel, um, what he did, what he is doing, and what he will do with Israel. And if, this, if I had preached this just six months ago, this would not be feel weird and controversial at all. All of a sudden, it does feel weird and controversial, okay, because Israel's all on the news, right? I'm not going to go in, I'm not going to go political, okay? Uh, I, I, you guys know me. I don't start with political categories. I want to look at what is God saying through Paul in chapter 11, okay? But I'm just saying that, you know, if, if I don't answer all of your questions, if you've been watching the news and you've been diving into the, the YouTube rabbit hole of various opinions from well-meaning Christians about all of these things, and if I don't touch on all of those things, because I know some of you have been doing the deep dive, um, God bless you. Um, I'm not going all into that because I'm going to stay real close to Romans 11 and not branch off. But I'm going to I'm going to touch it enough to touch the sore spots enough to maybe irritate some of you, and that's it, all right? Um, But the big idea before I review is this. Our unbelief is no match for God's calling because God always gets what he chooses. That's the big idea. That is the point Paul's going to make. God always gets what he chooses no matter what it looks like. So that's where we're going to end up. So as I'm going through and you kind of feel like, what does this have to do with that? I'll show you, okay? So Romans 9, if you remember, is all about what God does, the sovereign choice of God over salvation. And I gave you a chart back then, a little graph that says God foreknew us, then he predestined us, then he called us, then he justified, and then he has and will glorify us. God does all of that in you and through you and for you. Then chapter 10 is almost like a counterpoint, which is what do we do? Humanity is responsible to believe and to obey. So we are sent, then we preach the gospel. People heard or hear the gospel, then believe it, and then call on him, and they are saved. That's my summary of chapter 9 and 10. 
But remember, this might have slipped your memory. Why is Paul bringing this up at all? Because there's a question. And the question being asked is, did God's word fail for Israel? Think of your historical perspective. You have God choosing a people, and he brings them out of captivity into freedom from Egypt, and then brings them across the desert to a land that he had promised them. They get to that land that he promised, and then they live out their history with lots of ups and downs, faithfulness and unfaithfulness over and over and over again, unfaithfulness, judgment, then more faithfulness, then unfaithfulness, judgment, and so forth, until in all of creation, especially the chosen people of God, are waiting for the Messiah to come. And all of that history leads up to Jesus. Jesus is born on Christmas Day. Yay! And the shepherds rejoice. And no one else did. And then Jesus preaches, he teaches, and then they kill him, and he dies, and he's raised on the third day, and he walks around and appears to a bunch of people, including the 12 disciples that he'd been walking around with. He tells them, go wait for me. I'm leaving. Wait for me. The Holy Spirit's going to come, and then I'm going to send you into the world. And he does that. And where do they go first? When the Holy Spirit comes on Pentecost, and they're all fired up and full of the Holy Spirit, full of the Spirit of Christ, they go out and they preach the gospel to the Jews. And the Jews wholesale reject it. So they reject Christ and then reject him again, right? And then Paul says in Romans, basically, I've done what I can. Some have been saved, most have not. It grieves his heart, but he says, I'm going to the Gentiles. And that's where we are in the timeline here. And so the question is, man, it seems like, like God went through all this trouble. Not just, it's not just, we're not just talking about one sermon that Paul preached. We're talking about all of history. The weight of history pushing forward on these people to receive the gospel, and they reject it. And Paul says, yeah, they rejected it. And so what do we do with that? What do we do with what looks like the complete and wholesale failure of the gospel to do its job? What do we do? Paul begins with, God is sovereign, chapter 9. And then he says, we are responsible for our unbelief. And then chapter 11, he's going to talk about the details of what is God going to do with who's left that he promised to rescue. And I think we can all really, whether you're really into the news or not, we can all relate to that feeling, can't we? It looks like the word of God failed. What I'm going to want you to see is our unbelief is no match for God. Because God always gets what he chooses. There is not one choice God has ever made or will make that this does not result in perfect, total obedience to his will. Period. That's where we're going, all right? So hopefully that's a, that'll give you a compass heading as we dive down into the weeds. All right, Romans 11, the first seven verses. 
So he basically returns to this question that I just told you. Verse 1, he says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Woohoo, the best tribe. <laughs> My name is Benjamin. He didn't know. It's the best one. Sermon over. Just, let's just go home, right? Awkward pause. Verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Quote, Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Okay, if you remember the story of Elijah, we did First and Second Kings. I know it feels like forever ago, but it wasn't that long. And we went over this story. Elijah prophesied to the people, repent, stop worshiping these idols. You know, king after king after king is leading Israel into idol worship, and they are seen more than happy to follow them into idol worship. And he calls them to repent to the point where he's become such a problem that they're trying to kill him. And he ends up in a cave, despondent, in despair, really frustrated with Israel, and he complains to God about these stiff-necked people. They have, there's nobody left. Do you ever feel this way? I'm all alone. You led me out to the desert to die, God. No one's left. No one's faithful. Not like me. God's answer to Elijah was, hey, you don't see it. You don't know these people, but I do. I have kept for myself 7,000 faithful, a remnant. All of Israel is not lost. I have kept, not Elijah, not Elijah's prophecy. Nobody even knew they existed, but God had been at work holding 7,000 faithful that did not bow the knee and worship Baal. And that's his answer to, to Elijah's despondency over the state of things. And then Paul goes on in verses 7 through 10. We're not going to read them this morning with two more scriptural examples to prove his point. But let's skip down just a couple of verses. Verses uh, 11 through 15, he says, So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means, he's talking about they being Israel. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Praise God for that. I'm a Gentile. So as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, or, yeah, excuse me, riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, and as much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? So the second half of verse 12, 
is where most of the debate lands. There's a few other places, but this is kind of the epicenter. What does he mean by their full inclusion? Who's they, and what does full inclusion mean? How full is the inclusion? <laughs> and when is that inclusion going to happen? Everybody gets out their timeline and starts putting dots on it, trying to figure out when that's going to happen and who it's for and what it means, right? I think there, the word there, that pronoun is referring to the true Israel. You can fight with me and I won't fight back. But that's what I think. Romans 9, 6 through 8, I think, sets it up. Meaning all those that believe the gospel, all Israelites, all Jews that believe the gospel are the true Israel. But that also includes now, we'll get to this in a second, all the Gentiles that believe the gospel and are grafted in. That's a word picture we get in a minute, which I think will clarify this a little bit. That is almost the same idea as true Israel because we would still not expect that it is literally every Jew that has ever lived. This is like saying, hey, I went to uh, the basketball game the other day and the whole school was there. Well, what do you mean? Do you literally mean every single student without exception was there at the game? No, you just mean most everybody. And so when Paul says Israel rejected the gospel, does he mean that every single person did? No, he just means some wholesale, close to everybody, the majority. We don't know if that's 60%, 75%, 90%, but he says they rejected it, so I've gone on to the Gentiles, okay? This is the same concept where he says all will have full inclusion. Does that mean literally every Jew? I don't believe so. That's just where I'm at. All right. If you want to say all, and praise God, that's how I'd like to see. <laughs> Literally all. It's important to note that some teach that there is a second parallel covenant for Jews that is essentially guarantees that all ethnic Jews will be saved in the end. I will say that is a false teaching. That there is a second way to heaven for ethnic Jews. That's becoming more and more popular. Uh, it's always kind of been a fringe thing, and it's less and less fringe. That there's Gentile Christians, and you come in through the gospel of grace, the covenant of grace, and then there's this other covenant that runs parallel to, I've heard this taught before, I don't know if you have, that runs parallel, that's a separate deal that they make with God. And that's false. Okay? There's only one gospel, one way to God, and this is most of what Paul spent his time preaching about and correcting. Because he's speaking to, remember, the Roman church is full of Gentiles and Jews. Imagine that situation. This is in a time when the primary persecution against the church was coming from Jews. But some of them were getting saved. So you go, like Paul. Paul started out persecuting Christians. Now he's, he's like the chief the, you know, the top dude Christian, right? He's writing most of the New Testament at this point. And he's speaking to these people in this church where they've got Gentiles, and they've got Greeks, and they've got Jews who probably, some of them were previously really mad at Christians. And now they're in the church and he's going, how do we all come together? Paul would not say there's another way. You Gentiles have one way, you Jews have another way. 
So what's most important here, I believe, is not the timeline, but what God promises to do with Israel and the role of Gentiles in that plan. God hardening unbelieving Israel's heart, or if you prefer, allowing them to harden their heart, depending on your theological persuasion. Um, God allowed them because he wanted the gospel to go out from that nation, and he's creating jealousy. Paul says, I want Israel to be jealous of what God has given us. So this is like, um, if you have a child who's really grumpy at you as a parent, they're really mad, and they're over there crossing their arms, and you offer them their favorite ice cream. And they go, I don't even like ice cream. I mean, ice cream is stupid. It's for little kids. And they stand over in the corner with their arms crossed going, I don't even want it. You can't, you can't make me not be grumpy with your treats. You want to know how to get that kid to remember his love for ice cream? Is you give the ice cream to his sibling and have them eat it in front of them. And it is amazing how quickly the heart changes when they look at their sibling just with chocolate dribbling down the chin and it's melting so fast, they're like, I can't eat it fast enough. I just can't get it down fast enough. Oh, the pressure of consuming all this ice cream before it falls to the ground. They go, oh, if only someone would help me eat this ice cream. Suddenly the heart changes. And this is what Paul's describing. He's saying, look, they rejected it, but God has not rejected them. They rejected God. God has not rejected them. And he's more interested in whether or not God has rejected them or not rejected them. And he says, so what I'm doing is I'm going to the Gentiles, but I have not forgotten my Israelite friends. And I am praying and hoping that as the gift of God, the goodness of God is on display to the Gentile world, and it goes all over the world, that the Jews that I am walking away from will look at that and be inspired and go, oh, that, looks, that ice cream looks pretty good. Do you think, well, I could have some? That's what he's hoping to see. And so even in the rejection, God's at work. That's profound. Even in what looks like utter and complete failure, God has a plan. It's part of his sovereign plan. So then he turns to Gentiles and he begins to speak to them in Romans eleven seventeen through 24. He says, but as some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Branches were broken off so that I might broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. This is Caroline's scripture she read this morning. She didn't read this verse, but it's the same idea. Don't do not become proud, but fear, for if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. 
And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. Hello. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? This is a very helpful illustration of what God's plan is. So Israel is a cultivated olive tree, meaning it is bearing tons of fruit, just heavy with olives growing healthy and strong and it's looked after and tended and pruned when it needs to be pruned and it is it's a prize olive tree and there's this crazy wild olive tree out in the desert just growing all crazy and willy-nilly no one's it's just uncontained unrestrained and a little embarrassing you ride by it on your donkey and go oh somebody needs to just cut that tree down those are the Gentiles. And Paul, I think with a little sense of humor, I think there's a wink in here about the wild and the olive tree, but he says, you who don't deserve to be involved, God has allowed branches of the cultivated tree to fall off. Those are the people that have rejected the gospel, the Jews that have rejected the gospel. And he says, I'm grafting in branches from the wild, crazy tree into the good tree. And that's you. So don't be arrogant. Yeah, it's good news. A place was made for you. But don't be arrogant because in the same way that God cut off those branches before, he can cut you off. And what else does he say? There's a promise. He says, if those who were cut off will believe, they too will be grafted back in. What a great thing that is. Do you see God's plan in that? So when you look at it, there's not two trees. God didn't say, okay, the, the cultivated tree failed and it just, you know, branches fell off. Ugh, what to do? Maybe we'll just start over with the wild tree in the desert. No, he said, there's not two trees, there's one. So here's the thing. The church doesn't replace Israel. Israel is the church. It has always been one tree from the beginning. One tree forever. You either grafted in or you fell off and dried up on the ground, but there's one tree and we all come to the same tree, no matter who we are. There's no room for arrogance. There's no room, if, you know, uh, any kind of anti-Semitism from Christians is absolutely insane. You are cutting, literally cutting off the branch that you're standing on. To use Paul's metaphor, you're cutting off, you're, you're attacking the tree that you're connected to. <laughs> it's insane. It's not just sinful, it's really stupid. Don't be that person. Israel is not replaced by the church. It is the church. 
God is not on plan B now that Israel messed up plan A, which is kind of the question that's happening at the time, and it's still quite often people's question. There's no plan B with God, not in your life and not in the life of the church and not with Israel. Nowhere in history is there some branch where we went rogue off of God's plan, and then now we're on some weird you know, thing where he's, he's responding and trying to recover the situation and somehow get it back on track. It is plan A from the beginning, and that's Paul's point. God has never lost control. Verse 25 through 32 is a great summary. If you're confused about chapter 11, focus here and you'll see Paul's big point. All right? He says, lest you be wise in your own sight. So he's still speaking to Gentiles. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now again, we can fight over what that means. Does that mean Israel won't be saved until all the Gentiles get saved and there's a a stage? Or is it all happening at once? Um, Or maybe is it both? (laughs) I don't know. Just put your timeline away. It's fine. Just believe what it says. Just believe what he says. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion, he will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God's promise to Israel and to you and to his church is irrevocable. Your unbelief is no match for God. You can stop believing in God, but the real concern is, does God believe in you, in his choice of you, I should say? If the answer is yes, you're you're just delaying the inevitable. Gail Davis told me she's praying for all sorts of people, and I told her, they don't have a chance. I am less impressed by their unbelief than God's power and his sovereign choice. God gets what he chooses every single time without exception. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Just a side note, if you're wondering what version I'm reading, I just read a combination of the ESV and the NASB, and I put it in brackets in my notes. Um, every Bible is translated from Greek, and they make. If, this is a really good example of how different translators will put, you read a bunch of different translations of this verse, you'll see different wording, but they all mean the same thing. And the ESV was frustrating me, so I just took the NASB and stuck it in, all right? It's fine. It's not a different Bible. But if you want to understand how translation works, just look at this verse in different versions, and you'll see it. It's obvious, okay? So from the standpoint or the perspective of the gospel, those those Jews who have rejected the gospel are enemies of the gospel. So Paul, it sounds like at the start of that sentence, he's agreeing with the people who were mad at the Jews. But then what does he say? He said, but from the perspective of God's choice, they are his beloved. So don't 
be mean to his beloved. You go, well, how do I know? God's not telling you. I think that's a good plan. I, I agree with that choice. Not that he needs me to agree with him. The idea that you and I don't know who he chooses and who he doesn't. Because we, have, we do weird things. Well, you're just not God's beloved, so I don't have to love you. God, would you just show me your specific plan for everyone so I can know who to care about and who not to? He doesn't do it. He doesn't give you that answer. So be careful who you call an enemy of the gospel. They might be. You might be right. But they also could be beloved by the choice of God. And they're just having to wander around that olive tree a couple more times before they believe. So Israel rejected God, but God did not reject them. Some individuals among the people of Israel may have embraced unbelief, but God's promise to bring Israel into his kingdom has not failed. We like to think that once you're in the kingdom of God, once God chooses you, I should put it that way, everything's going to be up and to the right, as they say. The line graph of blessing and joy and good times in Jesus is just always getting better up and to the right. I should to you it this way. <laughs> up and to the right. And we get really blown out when, it, when the line of progress doesn't seem to be going up and to the right. It seems to be plummeting. I think we're entering into a time in the church today, I think this applies directly to the church today. We're living in a day when local churches are falling away all at once, all together, because they deny the gospel in some form. They abandon the word of God. They embrace political ideologies over the gospel, they're giving greater allegiance to their chosen political categories than they do the kingdom of God. Or they deny the supremacy of Jesus. They stop worshiping him. At the same time, Christians in good churches are abandoning the faith in the same way some whole churches are doing. And it can be disheartening. At the same time, division comes into the church over all sorts of things, and now churches turn against churches. say, well, you're not being as conservative politically as we think you should be, so you're anathema. And other people say, well, you're not being as progressive as we think you should be, so you're anathema. We're bad at you, and they fight on the internet and start podcasts. I'm so tired of pastors starting podcasts. I quit mine because I'm just annoyed by the whole situation. Like, nobody's asking you for your opinion. Just pastor your church. Go visit somebody. You know? Take Gloria Cotton and Gail Davis out for lunch. Shut your mouth and have a, you know, just do your thing. You know, just get off, get off, get, take the microphone away. Aren't you tired of, I, I get sick of this thing. The voice is so loud and, you know, I don't get it. And they're all just fighting and turning. I think that's what we're looking at. This season we're in, I don't believe it's going to get better. I think the day is going to come when the biggest 
persecutors of the church will be the church. And what the world does and their protests and their anger will seem like nothing compared to the kind of vitriol you get from other churches. That's the kind of division we're starting to see. And it exists on the internet, but at some point it stops being on the internet and it becomes real life. What do we do when, when the world says the word of God has failed? Because that is what the world will say. It will say of Christians, the word of God has failed. Because look at them now. They can't get along. They can't keep their members. They can't keep their property. They can't do anything right. And their political party has failed and it can't do its job anymore. So the word of God has failed. By the way, that's one of the problems with hinging yourself to politics is when politics fail, people will say the church has failed. So I'm prophesying to you a little bit. Romans 11 isn't just about God's plan for Israel, it's about God's plan for the church, which includes all people. His plan is not a straight line up and to the right. I wish it was. But the question is whose report are you going to believe? Are you going to believe that God's word never fails? Our unbelief is no match for his, and when he promises, I will have a people, and they will be my people forever, I will have myself a big family, and it will be my eternal family, and I will have every single person I call will be in my family, I will see to it, and what I promise, I will do. Or will we say, you know, you're right, the word of God has failed. What we need is better techniques and methods or whatever. Or what we need to do is capitulate a little bit. Just kind of lean in, it's fine. Just capitulate. Don't preach on that. Don't say that. God always gets what he chooses. And he has chosen a people to call his own. And he is working an unconventional plan to draw them to himself. It's a weird plan. I mean, just looking at Israel and what happened there and what God promises there. That he will have his people his chosen people, he will have Israel. He will have them. They will come in. And I don't know how many that means before you can say he has them. I don't know when that is supposed to happen. I think it's happening now. I think it, because everybody comes in this, through the same door and maybe there's going to be a bigger harvest at the end. But I'm praying that God brings his, God gets what he wants. That he gets what he wants out of Israel and he gets what he wants out of us. And that we would not grow arrogant and think, you know, God, we're kind of a big deal because we got grafted in and we're doing pretty great. Because what happens is when you're not doing pretty great, you despair. Because your view of God and his sovereignty does not include the possibility that sometimes the graft points down and it looks like the whole thing's falling apart. If Jesus puts a lampstand of his presence in this church, it will stand until he takes it away. And it has got nothing to do with how smart we are or how savvy we are or how good the preaching is or how good the music is or how, what color the building is. I want every, all those things to be great. But his lampstand is his presence. And as long as his presence is in the church, that's what matters. And that is not just true for living hope. It is true for the church in America that is faltering right now. It is wavering. 
But God says, true Israel is true Israel, and I will have her for myself. Amen? So you listen for it. If you watch the news, I'm kind of tired of it right now. Um, for, listen for people to say some form of the word of God has failed. And you need to say in your heart when you hear that, no, it hasn't. God's just making people jealous. Sometimes you're the sibling with the ice cream cone, and sometimes you're the one in the corner with your arms folded saying, I don't even like ice cream. <laughs> sometimes you're the wild olive tree, and sometimes you're the cultivated one. So I also want to say, I, I do think this is a corporate word that God, Paul's talking about Israel as a group, right? But I do think there's an application to be made before I end regarding people you know that seem to have been on the tree and now seem like they're off the tree. It's more complicated because we don't know. Like I said, it would be great if there was like a little sign, like maybe an exclamation point for everybody that says they're out, but really they're in. <laughs> like I've said to people before, not everybody, I don't recommend this, that said, you know, I just don't believe this. and say, I don't believe you. And now I've started saying, I believe you, but that's not the bigger question. The bigger question is, what does God say? And if God says, I chose you, then your unbelief is a big deal. It's serious. It's bad. But you're, there's no, you have no chance. He's chosen. And he gets what he chooses. I think that's where we stand in those kind of situations. I don't know, God. I'm not in the place of the Savior or the convincer. I don't have to decide if he chose you or didn't chose you. What I do is I throw myself at the feet of Jesus and I say, choose my friend, choose my daughter, my son, my husband, my wife, my boss. Choose them. Choose them. Lord Jesus, would you choose? Because I know what you choose, you get. You have promised it over and over and over again. All that needs to happen is not them deciding that they're in. It's that you choose. And if you choose, they're in whether they like it or not. The sovereignty of God is the ballast in the bottom of the boat. I didn't come up with that. I heard that recently. I think it's great. It's the weight in the bottom of the boat that keeps it from falling over when waves hit it on the side. It creates stability and believing that God gets what he chooses. And my unbelief and your unbelief and Israel's unbelief or the church's unbelief is no match for his choosing. And they, you, they may be an enemy of the gospel. They may hate God and hate the gospel and hate the church and cause all sorts of problems and stand outside in the parking lot with picket signs and throw stones and all kinds of things on the internet and say mean words to you. But they are the beloved by his choice. And that's how we treat them. So I want to pray for unity in the church here and everywhere. But I also want to pray for those that we love that seem far from God. And I say seem. Because you're only as far from God as he chooses you to be. <laughs> Sometimes we look at people and they're a mess. You're so far. They're far from God. Until God goes, you're mine. 
plucks you out and puts you in his family. And that was just his choice to pluck you up. Suddenly your heart is opened. You see the truth of who he is. Faith just comes out and you go, I believe. So maybe they're not as far as we think. So I'd like to pray for those people that, you know, just as you're thinking of people that you know that it may be somebody you love, somebody you know, somebody you just know of, but I just want to ask you to bring those people to mind. And instead of saying, how can I convince them to believe, what if you just began to pray and ask God, would you just make a choice? Would you please? I got nothing here. Would you make a choice? And then I want to pray, not just for living hope here, but the church everywhere, because as the world begins to say the word of God has failed, I want to see the church rise up and say, God never fails. Never, never, ever, ever, ever. Amen. So let's, why don't we stand up together and pray over those two things. Why don't you just begin to pray? I'll pray for us, but you pray for people by name. I think that's helpful. Asking God to stir their hearts and open their hearts, soften their hearts, and give them the faith to believe Him. So God, we lift up every person that we're thinking of right now. Everyone from family members to spouses, brothers and sisters, neighbors and friends, all the people that have wandered into our life, but especially those who have been, who have tasted of you. Maybe they grew up around Christians or in a church even, or maybe they grew up in a really healthy place and then all of a sudden the world became enticing to the point where they walked away. Or maybe they failed in some way that shame made them run and hide from you. But God, I, I pray for all of those people. God, we take ourselves out of the position of Savior with them. We step aside and we ask you, Lord, would you sovereignly choose those people? Pluck them out of darkness. Pluck them out of the wide road that leads to hell and bring them into the narrow way. Bring them into your family. God, I pray that you would stir up a holy jealousy in their heart of what you have given us as Christians. We have a ballast in the boat. We have a good and great and mighty God who loves us and knows us and sees us and cares for us. And he has designed a plan for us. And we are headed towards an eternal home that is glorious and beautiful and full of joy that is inexpressible. God, I pray that there would be a holy jealousy stirred up, that people would begin to come and say, I don't believe this. I don't believe in your God, but what you have, I'm jealous of. I want life and not death. I want blessing and not cursing. I want fruit and not being cut off from the tree. 
God, help us to overflow with joy in the goodness of God. And God, we pray for your church. God, we confess with you the truth, which is your church is not shrinking. Your church is not dailing, dying. She is not faltering. You have kept for yourself a remnant. Just like you told Elijah. This remnant is bigger than 7,000. <laughs> but God, you are in charge of the remnant. And we ask you, Lord, would you preserve your church, expand your church, bring her to greater fruitfulness. God, help us to not grow arrogant, whether it's towards Israel or towards people who, Christians who just don't seem to get it. God, whatever it is, that we would not join in the accusations and the arrogance that we see in the church in America right now. And instead, God, I pray that you would burn into our thinking this idea that they may be enemies of the gospel, that they also might be the beloved chosen by you. So God, would you unify your church, not around silliness, silly myths and legends and false power and false success and false gospels and all the idols that the world produces. God, that we would instead be unified around you and your promises. So God, I ask you to preserve us and preserve your church. God, I pray that in the midst of so much divisiveness and failing, God, that you would bring real revival to your church. God, that in the midst of the world crying out with a pointed finger and a mocking tone saying the word of God has failed. God, I pray in the midst of all of that silliness, God, that you would bring revival and restoration to your church. And God, that people would come in, a harvest would come in. God, that you would answer the mockery with revival. God, we believe that your word never fails. Your promises are always yes and amen. You will do what you say. You will get what you choose. And we submit to that right now in the name of Jesus. Amen.